Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And I'm Liz Mitchell. People's Action and People's Action Institute were founded in 2016 to ignite a movement of millions that captures the rising demand for change in our society. Formed from the meager of the form from the merger of powerful national organizations, we also come from a storied history of innovation and success. And in November of 2020, George Gell, director of People's Action, said on Hill TV's program called Rising that Democrats need to embrace populism if they want to win over rural voters. Gell said that the nation is in the middle of a populist move, uh, moment that Democrats are not recognizing, adding that they fail to name some of the villains facing the nation, such as pharmaceutical companies and big banks. Everybody talks about uh, narratives these days. Well, narratives read villains and heroes, Gail said. And if you're not going to name them, then the other side's gonna name them for you. And they will name women, people of color, Muslims, big government. And Gail noted that most rural voters would not trust someone that's not going to directly address the issues they're facing and promise to address them. I think most of the rural voters we talk to are like, I don't trust someone who's not willing to say to me, yes, someone's responsible for this and I'm gonna fight them for you. Uh, and Gail continued, so I think until Democrats fix that problem, there's going to be a lot of struggles in rural communities. Here to help us better understand People's Action and People's Action Institute is Director George Gale. George, welcome to Bring It On. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Excited for this conversation. And for our listeners, we sort of uh, caught up with George, found out that he has Hoosier roots and uh, is a, an eternal fan of Hoosier basketball and uh, had this sort of real vivid memory of watching uh, the team play basketball and either during halftime or after the game going out and practicing what they saw on the big on the big screen but uh george welcome to bring it on thanks for joining us today yeah so glad to be here and definitely a proud hoosier yeah uh, george my first question is uh since uh, i'm really hadn't heard of this and probably um some of our listening audience have not heard of this uh action group either would you explain to us uh how you started and what what your agenda is? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so People's Action is a uh, network of community organizations from across the country that do community organizing in low-income and working-class uh, neighborhoods, and we are a solid mix of urban, suburban, and rural. Um, we have local affiliates in 35 states, um, and we go out and we knock on doors and we ask people what issues they care about, what they see as the solutions, and then get people who are often not coming together for whatever reason, to come together, uh, to build power, to develop strategies, and to win on the issues. And increasingly over the last 10 years have taken that power into the electoral arena 
to try to elect our values and candidates that represent them to, to public office. And uh, we, in 2016, merged what ended up being five national organizations into one, sensing that the challenges that low-income and working-class people across race were facing required us to get bigger and to be able to achieve some sense of power and scale to address the issues of the day. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is a group called National People's Action, which was one of the organizations that helped form People's Action, um, really uh, came together in the early 70s as uh, blockbusters, uh, you know, kind of uh, realtors and mortgage bankers were trying to like basically spike white flight out, out of neighborhoods as they were changing. And the founding principle of National People's Action is we have found the villain and it's not each other. We got to stay together and stay focused on the true cause of, of our pain and our struggles. And that kind of is still in our DNA today. Now, you know, do you feel uh, you, your life threatened by any of this? Because the people in the past, I'm, I'm sort of a historian, mm -hmm. uh, that have done what you're trying to do, uh, merge low-income people and, and differ of, of Black and white Muslims. And uh, doing that, people in the past were killed for that. Yeah. So, do you feel threatened in any way by what you're trying to do? Um, that's a great historical point. I'm glad you raised that. I'm thinking about the Greensboro massacre um, that, that happened in the day. And if you talk to the civil rights elders from that moment, they said the moment everybody got twitchy is when they started bringing low-income whites into that coalition. And yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, I wouldn't say threatened, but I would say what's interesting is like when the financial crisis hit, um, and this is before we did the merger, National People's Action, we moved more people into the streets to challenge the big banks than anybody. This is before Occupy Wall Street went off. And we were immediately in the crosshairs of Fox News and Glenn Beck did a whole piece on us, Breitbart, and it was because they saw that multiracial coalition emerging, yeah. um, taking it to the banks. And they're like, wait, this is not, this is not, because we were like, wow, why are we getting so much attention? And then we figured out it was that specific thing you just named. They, they got everybody nervous. Yeah, yeah. And what a different America would be oh. if if these different groups didn't buy into uh, uh, being divided, that mm -hmm. poor whites can't be together with poor blacks. And if you saw the big picture, yep. if we came together, oh, my God. Oh, it would be game over. Like, And yeah. I would say that's that's what we wake up obsessed with, that question here. How do we break through all of the stuff that the other side has done quite well? Um, and obviously this goes back, you know, to, to slavery, the beginning of slavery, like this division of people, like we said, our founding principle is like, how do we break that up? Um, it's not easy. It's not, but um, and I'm excited to tell you some of the success stories we're having though. It's really. Oh, can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's, uh, let's talk about that um, for a while. Some of the things that you see as, as monumental progress. And you said you talked about emerging of various groups with a sort of a common focus. And, and let me ask, was William Barber's group, Reverend William Barber's group, part of that? Not part of this merger, which was like a legal merger. We literally oh, I see. all I see. certain groups. Um, but I would say in terms of the fusion uh, theory of change of Reverend Barber is very much aligned. When we look out at our, you know, sisters and brothers, we're like, this is somebody that, you know, actually has a very similar operating theory. Um, well, well sure. let's hear some of those successes that, that you referenced. Yeah. So... Um, in 2016, even as kind of Trump was emerging, even in 15, we started having conversations inside of our organization around like, oh, we've, we've got some good rural organizing happening in our network. And we organized some 
like low income white folks, um, but maybe not at the level we need to clearly from what was kind of happening, you know, with the electorate and we decided to to shift that. And so in 2017, we started new organizing drives, which I'll describe what those looked like um, in counties all across the country. But we prioritized um, what you know, people call Obama to Trump counties, counties that voted for President Obama in most cases twice. There's 676 counties that voted for President Obama twice. A third of those went to Trump, uh, which is kind of amazing, and many by like 25% swings in that next election, in that 2016 election. So we picked those counties, uh, not all of them, but a bunch of them, places that were in significant economic decline. And then we intentionally picked um, some communities that where there had already been a visible rise in white nationalist organizing. So that was kind of our criteria. And then um, folks that were from those communities, um, and then some folks that wanted to move back home. This has been an interesting trend, like folks who grew up rural, you know, in a majority white community, went off to college, went to the big city, you know, learned, you know, definitely became woke in a bunch of ways. After Trump got elected, like, I got to go back home. And we actually helped people go back home to do that organizing, which was amazing because it was like the reverse of a brain drain. It was a bunch of really talented organizers headed back home. And then we went out and we knocked on, we had 10,000 conversations with folks, um, like fairly in-depth conversations on people's front porches, outside of places of worship, at a food bank, wherever it was, and asked people three questions. Like, what issues keep you up at night? What do you see as the solution, which was our effort to like, just because somebody said healthcare was the problem, didn't mean they thought public healthcare was the answer. We try to create some space for people to inform that. And then we asked like, who and what do you think is responsible for the shifting conditions here, which is where we got into the, how people are making meaning, which gets to the whole question of we can introduce villains or somebody else will do it. Um, and uh, and happy to say more about what we heard from those conversations, like at a specific data level. But the main thing people were like, you know what, nobody's ever asked me before. Or like, I haven't somebody had somebody come knock on my doors to talk like this ever or look for 20 years. So people really appreciated being asked. But then we actually started working on the exact issues people identified. So if they said it's factory farms coming in and polluting the air and water, if it was a fracking pipeline that was going to destroy people's land in North Carolina, we built a really neat coalition of like kind of white property owners and black churches came together to stop a fracking pipeline that was in, was going to threaten both communities. Um, we won opioid addiction relief. We passed Medicaid expansion in a state. We won the first rural living wage. So actually design these look. And along the way, people moved into a multiracial context in many ways that they hadn't. And so, and as people were like, one, they felt heard because we listened first. Two, we worked on the issues they picked, not issues that some foundation or somebody else picked. Three, we were winning that we had enough trust there to say, well, let's talk about racism as a system that creates different outcomes for different people. And is probably the reason we weren't in the room together winning in the first place. Like, let's talk about that. And, you know, and we did that very methodically. And I mean, look, sometimes it didn't work. And sometimes, you know, some people left, but more often than not, we had created the kind of foundation to have like cathartic breakthrough level conversations with people about racism. And, uh, and then the organizations got stronger and then we took on bigger things. So that is, I mean, I can go deeper into the woods on or weeds on some of this stuff, but that's just like, an example of what it looks like if we actually listen to people, we win stuff, but we also eventually get to the conversation. Right. You know, as you were talking, I, I got in my mind this image of what is viewed as rural, and in large part that was sort of painted by politicians in the primaries when everyone rushes to Iowa, of all places, and you see them with their sleeves rolled up, and they're at the, the fair, the county fairs, and you get the sense, oh, well, this, this must be what they are talking about when they say rule, and they're totally missing the mark. 
And it may be the, the full extent of their outreach to rural folk. Oh. And, and the one thing you just said, you go and talk to people and ask them, what keeps you up at night? What is your kitchen table conversation? What does it sound like? And then, and then when they sense that you're, you're concerned about me and my well-being, my family, my future, my children's future, hey, I've got a farm or I, I have, I'm doing something here that I want to pass on to my children, but I'm afraid the, the, the economy won't support it. I'm not hearing answers, but you've come to talk to me. You know, how, how, how underrated is that? I, I think it's, I think it's actually the part of the solution to some of our greatest problems is going out and listening. I think it's incredibly underrated. It's a, it's like, we're skipping one of the most important steps. Like everybody needs to be seen and heard. Like it is part of the human condition. We need to be seen and heard. And like, and I would say most low income and, you know, struggling folks in this country don't feel seen and heard. Like that crosses race and geography. Right. Um, so just to be clear, like it's not specific to rural folks or white folks, but I think it's uh, to us, we think it's a big part of the future, both the listening and as time goes by, some of the sharing of our experience of things. But too much of engagement of voters is is around pitching. We're like pitching, we're selling constantly. And I think people are people being, you know, sold stuff for a long time and don't see anything change. And like it's time for us to do some listening. Well, if you just tuned in to bring it on, we're having a wonderful conversation with George Gelb who is the director of the and talking about his uh, philosophy, his vision, little genesis of the organization. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really interested in dying to get to this one part of our conversation that delves into his new podcast that he has uh, put together. And um, maybe we can do that now at this time. You, you just launched a podcast or you may have launched it a couple of years ago uh, it's entitled to see each each other to see each other and there are six episodes so far there may be more at this mm-hmm. point but there, there are six that are talked about on your website and if you can go through and you know you've given us the overview of what your organization's about and and the importance of getting out and talking to people in rural community communities and those who are disenfranchised those who are in poverty uh, there's an excellent uh, episode number two which took mm-hmm. place in Michigan where you, as you state, we learn what happens when we listen, truly listen, when we meet people where they are, when we honor each other's lived experiences and repair divides, both political and personal. So if you can elaborate on that episode too, because uh, yeah. I want to sort of drive individuals to that podcast so that they can enjoy that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been a fun project. So uh, this series really kind of tells the story of our decision to like, reinvest in rural organizing, the listening and kind of all of what happened. And we go to some of the, you know, different geographies. So the second episode is in Michigan. And as we were doing this organizing that I was referring to earlier, and people were in a room winning, making meaning together, um, we ran into uh, basically many folks and this crossed race, but definitely was something that, you know, with some rural white folks came up in particular, like feeling like the kind of progressive worldview on immigration was a bridge too far. Um, and, and that also being like the kind of one of the race issues that President Trump was animating the most, um, though, though there were many that he's done that with. Um, so we wanted to see if that we could figure out a, a more scaled way to have conversations with people about a, a race issue that was being used to divide people that would otherwise be together. 20% of the electorate um, is for uh, expanded public health care, for raising the minimum wage, for getting big money out of politics. But, but I would, you know, it's a very conservative and kind of nativist on immigration. Like that's a pretty big voting block if you don't figure out how to engage that group of folks. So we decided to test this thing called deep canvassing and deep canvassing are 
uh, longer form conversations. They're oftentimes 15 to 20 minutes on somebody's front porch, um, grounded in radical empathy. Like we are starting where people are at. Um, we are not here to judge, to cancel, to jump on you if you don't say the right thing. And we are gonna engage somebody around an issue where we're pretty damn sure the canvasser and the canvas don't see eye to eye on something and an issue that probably has some controversy in it. And in this conversation, we try to get the person to share in many cases what they're up against and what they're struggling with um, and how they're making meaning of the issue, how they came to make meaning. And then we share like what we're up against and what we're struggling with um, and how we came to make meaning of the issue. And amazingly, in this deep canvas model, some, something opens up in that space where people will re-examine things. Not everybody. I've had doors. I've had nights I knocked on doors. Sean Hannity answered the door every door in a row. It was not fun. And uh, I was always like, are we paying these canvassers enough? Because this, is this isn't fun. But then many nights, I'll just say one example, um, like talking to somebody about immigration and on, in a trailer court in, in rural North Carolina, you know, and kind of identified as being kind of regressive on immigration in the beginning of the conversation. After we did this and he shared what he was up against and the struggles and, you know, this rundown trailer court and, and not his wife not having health care. Um, and, you know, and I shared some of my stories and, and we kept going 12, 15 minutes in. He's like, you know what? I don't know any immigrants. Like everything I think about immigration is based on what I watch on the TV. Like, so it was just kind of this. And so really consistently people are like, wait, I'm like, I've come to a belief about a people that I actually have no lived, lived experience with. So like that right. would happen over and over. And then the other would be somebody be like, they wouldn't use these words, but it was some version of like, oh, there is a villain. There is somebody that's responsible for the fact that we don't have health care or that our communities run down. It's probably not the eight migrant families that moved to town. Um, and so like those were the two things. So the, to get to the Michigan episode, what's so interesting about the Michigan episode is many of our canvassers who go out and have these conversations in rural communities about, about issues usually where race is at the center. Um, will like kind of have breakthroughs. A lot of times people sign up, they need a job or whatever. And they're like, wait, this actually works. This is, I can't believe this is working. I mean, I can't believe it. Even the most conservative, you know, guy is going to actually end up telling you about the hardest time in their life. I've never had anybody not meet us there, which is kind of mind blowing. They don't know when you knock on their door, they've signed up for 15 to 20 minutes, but it almost always goes that long. Um, but the Michigan episode gets into the fact that one of the canvassers realized she's not bringing the same level of radical empathy to her family relationships or her folks back home. And so realized she's, you know, she'd been a little judgy and jumping on them if they don't think things exactly like she did. And so she changed her orientation to those relationships. And since then, they've been able to have much deeper conversations. And a lot of that, that episode was taped um, kind of right as, right as uh, the uprisings happened after the murder of George Floyd. And she was at a place to have much more transformative conversations with her folks back home because she used the, the model of deep canvas. Have you gone into known white supremacists and, and, and talked to them about why they feel the way they do and then you notice a change afterwards? Do they not know we're all kin? <laughs> that group's been harder. I mean, I, that probably is the group that's been in the like, I mean, when we did those first 10,000 conversations, we experienced a third of folks to be really with us. And that's a group that I think we take for granted. I don't sense you all do, but I think the big we takes this group in rural communities that's kind of with us for granted. A group in the middle that was like kind of with us on some stuff, but maybe not on everything. And we still engage that group because we're like, there's work to be done there. We say it's not where you start, it's where you might end up in this journey that we're focused on. And then there's a group to the far right that has been, to be honest, it's been a tougher nut to crack, uh, to oh. be honest. I don't want to act like we're having major breakthroughs there. Um, 
Well, who, who would you say, George, is the villain that uh, is a government, uh, big business that causes this divisiveness between poor people hmm. or yeah, a combination? I, well, that's a lot of people, I think. Um, and, and obviously it's kind of baked into the DNA of the founding of this country makes it so much harder. But when I think of the villain, if even if you, you know, talked about the populist moment that we're in, like, which I feel like really took off with the financial crisis and has just really not kind of gone away. Um, I think the villain that we have failed to name collectively in the Democratic Party kind of establishment hasn't named, was like, did not go hard enough on the big banks, you know, did not go hard enough on the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies. And it's partly because part of the Democratic Party is connected to or bought off by, or, you know, they're, they're kind of in, you know, not the whole, I mean, I would definitely favor Democrats over Republicans, but I'd say like, you know, a little more bought into that and get a lot of funding from that. And that failure to name that means that the other side is going to use, I mean, I would say the right meets parts of corporate America and parts of, you know, big business and big Republican donors who like their strategy. And that strategy goes back for the last 40 years. You know, I mean, I don't know if you guys have read Ian Haney Lopez's book, but I find this like the creation of dog whistle politics is a way to like divide divide kind of low income and working class white folks. And I think they're trying to do that now with Latinos, um, you know, away from black voters is like, I think it's just, it's an old, it's, it's as old as the country, right? The concept of divide and conquer. Uh, let me ask you on that topic of villains. Do you view Facebook and Twitter as, as villains? I think so. I mean, I think they're, yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, maybe, yeah, for sure. Like, and, and shaping and shaping opinion and, uh, spreading misunderstanding, misinformation. Right. We, we've been hammered with that oh. over the last five years, I'd say. Yeah, I would say, like, I actually don't know how we get to the other side if we don't address this misinformation and the fact that, in, in, you know, and at the end of the day, like, they have chosen to be more profitable over actually addressing this. Like, there are real right. clear ways to, like, reshape these algorithms to not, like, support and spread hate. I was looking the other day, like, a false a false tweet is 72 times as likely to get retweeted as a true tweet. And it's like, you know, they like there are ways to do that and, and to, to deal with the algorithms. So, so that's not the case, but I think for sure, if we, and we've been at, at people's action, we're like, we wonder if everything else we're doing is even going to matter if we don't create a more common sense around what is the truth in this country. We don't have to agree on everything, but it's right now it's, it's very scary. And, and one more follow-up if, if I can, then I'm going to defer to Liz. You know, you were talking about canvassing, and in my mind, I envisioning, I'm envisioning canvassing as you knock on one door, you maybe have 15, 20 minute interaction, which is the, the hopeful outcome, um, both to learn and to then share mm -hmm. uh, bits of truth. And you say goodbye, give them information on how to stay connected. Then you go to another door right next door, knock on that door, and the, repeat the process. That seems daunting. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and is there like a is there a formula where, okay, we only we realize that we want to try to hit in this community uh, maybe 150 out of the 500 that live here. Is that acceptable, or, or what's the goal? How do you keep people motivated? Paying them is one thing. No, oh, yeah. How do you keep people motivated to walk and knock. You know, I mean, people end up getting a little bit of religion on this. I mean, to be honest, like it is. Uh, it is like game changing when you have that first experience and somebody and you meet and you find, okay, there's this place we don't see eye to eye, but then you create this space through actually like really being curious and really wanting to under, like, we're not just, it's not some rote process. Like what's, what's your biggest struggle? Like we really want to know. 
And then you have this person who's like everything in their nature is not, I mean, there's nothing about our culture that really supports sharing your struggles with a perfect stranger. But right. again, I think this notion being seen. And then people either one, even if they don't come to some new agreement mm-hmm. at the end, a lot of our canvassers are like, I'm just having too many quality conversations where we're at least meeting each other here in a like humane and loving and interested in each other way. And then we might leave in some group, but like, that even restores people's sense of possibility. But then you have somebody that's like, says like, you know what, come to think of it, I don't know any immigrants or like, or like I'm, I'm buying into this Antifa stuff or that and now I feel stupid. Like, I think once you get one of those, you're like, you're kind of hooked on a chance for getting the other. So our, and, uh, and then the other thing I'd, I should just say about this, that we have measured the impact of this program. We've teamed up with uh, academics from Berkeley and Yale who are like the leading academics on measuring what shifts hearts and minds. Um, what we haven't measured yet is the shift in the canvassers that over and over canvassers might be like, oh, I started because I needed a job or I got involved as a volunteer because I wanted to beat Trump. But now I'm just a believer in this. And it's like, I'm done writing people off. Um, and then on the the point of like, how do you keep going? I mean, that the true heroes in this, and these are people I wish would love to see elevated more and we're actually trying to figure that out, is like a lot, I, half of the canvassers um, in the work we did before COVID and we went to the phones um, were, were canvassers, there were people of color and many were immigrants and children of immigrants going into 95% white rural communities to talk about immigration. Like I'm nervous as a white man, Not every, every time I'm like, it's like you almost gotta be prepared, for, you just have to be prepared for everything. It's almost like, you know, you're kind of like forfeiting yourself for a minute. And folks, you know, I'm thinking of Eloise from Michigan United who lives in Detroit as a Liberian immigrant and five days a week drives up to a rural town up in the thumb of Michigan to have these conversations. And and she loves it. And I'm sure she has days that she, you know, runs straight into racism. And I think that she has, I mean, she's one of the people said, like, I'm done writing people off. Like I'm, I'm having too many good conversations. So true, I think of as like true American heroes that most people will never know about without doing the work. And then to say we ended up recruiting 35,000 volunteers in the presidential election and thousands of those folks became like kind of super deep canvassers and doing it over the phone. Um, so I think there's a, I think there's a movement to be built around this deep canvassing. I know this, this group, it concentrates here in America, but the world is so small. We're all connected. Are there outside influences in this de- uh, divisiveness? In the U.S., you think, or like, or, or, or even outside of the U.S., uh, is is there, is there part of the divisiveness? Is it contributed from people outside of the U.S.? I think so. I'm not an expert, but it certainly looks like there's a decent amount of kind of hackers and from other countries and people moving disinformation. And uh, I think it's a real thing we're going to have to figure out. But I'm not definitely not. I'm not an expert on it. Um, so it's, but it's just. I mean, you know, it's been bad forever, right? It's not like it's, it just seems like it's now getting worse, right? And it's uh, um, one of the things on this and something you referenced earlier, Liz, is like the, I was thinking about, but is uh, how do we, if you even just think about the 40 million people that live in poverty in America pre-COVID, I don't know, we don't know what the numbers are now, but like that group, like if that group could get on the same page, something big breaks out. And, um, and yes. I trying to figure out just, you know, and a lot of low-income people, actually do live together across race, you know, whether they want to or not. They do. That's true. Like, I always think like when I, some of the more coastal progressives, I don't think like necessarily know that that's just, you know, people, um, you know, I used to organize in Crestmont and 
in uh, Bloomington, like, you know, in public housing there and people are living together across race and you know That's each right. other well and uh, the uh, trailer courts, I would knock on doors in North Carolina or Michigan were like multiracial and uh, um, it doesn't mean racism is happening there, but there's some, there's some stuff to work with. And, uh, and we're thinking about this, there are 18 million white people live in poverty. There's almost no organizing happening of those people by progressive, you know, justice seeking forces. We basically have forfeited that group to the right. Um, 1 million uh, low income white people in Florida, 815,000 in Pennsylvania. So trying to figure out, we're trying to figure out how do you bring those folks into a multiracial coalition and feel like we're done forfeiting folks to the right. It's just too many, too many people and too many lost souls. And you were right. I like, uh, found that interesting what you said. My husband has an aunt that's 102, grew up in Virginia in the coal mines. And, and just imagine she's 102. And she said she had no problems with racism growing up. The poor whites and the poor blacks united. If somebody had food, they offered it to anybody. It didn't matter about your color because they were all so poor. <laughs> color just didn't matter. It would just be dumb. And so I found when she told me that, I go, wow, wouldn't that be great if in America, poor people gathered, no matter what color you wore and your background, we just gathered. And then I realized, well, I think that's what got Martin Luther King killed. He was getting ready to do that very same thing. Yeah. Fred, Fred Hampton had walked into clan right. uh, uh, meetings and said, look, what you're going through is happening to us. Let's get together. And I thought, OK, that's a dangerous position to be in to unite these groups. No, I think you're right. They, you know, kind of, there's an establishment that doesn't want that. And. I think actually, as you tell, tell that story, it's like, how do we lift up? It is happening here and there. I mean, if either at the just very mutual aid level that you described, like it happens in communities, but the media only tells us the divisive stories. So how do we, and how do we celebrate the people that are doing the bridge building, coming to each other, meeting each other? Um, and again, it gets to this thing where people, I guess, tend to like click on the more negative news versus the, but I, I we know it happens kind of all the time, but it's not a, I don't know. We, I think we just have to tell that stories. And that's kind of why we told created the To See Each Other podcast. We was like, people just kind of like, let's just write off these communities. There's no hope. And we're like, no, there actually is hope. But if we go out there, the next season we want to do that is even going to be more on multiracial bridge building happening across communities. Well, if you, been, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to ID. And, and I'm, I'm going to also segue into something that, that George just shared. But, but, if you, but if you hold your, I'll tell you what, ask your question, Liz, and then I'll, I'll ID and then we'll, we'll sort of continue on a, a conversation that we have begun with George. Okay. My question is, uh, this is something I've been doing the last couple of years, George. If I find elderly and you're not part of that group, white men, I ask them the question, what are you afraid of? Mm. Um, I can't tell you now uh, about how many I've covered. Out of, out of the number that I've covered, I think one kind of hit it that I personally believe. He said, we're just so afraid that black and brown people are gonna treat us like we've treated them. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that? And have you heard this in, in your talks? What are white men afraid of? I mean, that resonates with me. I mean, I think at some level, I think people, you know, you like kind of used to being the dominant, you know, group and then you like people are thinking like oh that looks like that's maybe not going to be the case and i think in some ways that's not not i mean i would say that group in some parts of the country has been declining 
like economically for decades. You know what I mean? Like in terms of like some of the Midwest and the Rust Belt and, you know, where there used to be good union jobs, you could, you know, make a you know pretty serious wage in healthcare and a pinch. Like that's not really a thing in most parts of the country. So I believe there's some anxiety around that. And, uh, and I don't know if this, the other thing related to this, I think about is that some, like we are in, to me, like one of the most promising, if also like met with backlash periods of like truly becoming an America that's reconciled and reckoned with our, the contradictions between our founding words and actually what happened and what followed, like we're in it right now. And it's like, it's kind of amazing and beautiful and hopeful. And of course it's being met with backlash, but I think for, I would imagine for many older white men, like the, uh, kind of reckoning with the fact that a lot of the stuff they were taught in high school or they believed about Christopher Columbus or whatever all these things were they believed about America, like um, just aren't true or like feel like that's kind of being taken away from them. It's like a very easy thing for the right to stir up with people because it's like, uh, yeah, I think it's almost like getting at somebody's identity and sense of self. So I think, I think, I think what you said though is, is really interesting. People haven't said that to me, um, but I, I, I actually believe that. Um, yeah. Well, if you just joined us, uh, the gentleman you just heard talking is George Gale, who is director of People's Action and People's Action Institute. And he was responding uh, to a question by our co-anchor, Liz Mitchell, who also is a producer of Dark Past, Bright Future here on bringing on an award-winning uh, segment that she has produced for over, my goodness, over 18 years. Well, Oh, my. <laughs> Tell uh, my age. Tell no, my age. No, no, no. When, when you were in your teens, you start. No, no. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> Uh, I, I wanted to continue on that because I saw something on, of all things, the Smithsonian Channel. Hmm. And they were sort of uh, going back doing a retrospect on um, the Charlottesville you know, uh, protest. Hmm. The chance that the, the unison chant was, we shall not be replaced. Oh. As they're, they're carrying torches, placards, and marching in the night. And just a sense, it takes you back to a time when that was purposely done to bring terror in the hearts of people that they were trying to intimidate, whatever. But the chant was, we shall not be replaced. And this notion that uh, there is coming a year, and amazingly, this, this year keeps getting pushed back. <laughs> but when supposedly, those who are minority today will be in the majority in America. And, and you touched on that, where is there an inbred fear that we will be treated the way we've treated them, or uh, there's this notion now to defend, and then this concept of be a patriot, mm -hmm. and, and they're sowing this notion to people who are, uh, I would say, marginalized and impoverished, who have not had typically a voice, and they are rallying behind that. And Trump, in an artful, masterful way, yeah. knew how to, to touch that, that yeah. third rail in 2016, because I thought, what in the world is he doing coming down an escalator, escalator, rallying against people who are trying to just better their lot in life and just with one stroke painted them all and then launched his campaign Yeah, and has not really stopped that message since then. Your, your thoughts on that? I mean, it's so interesting that we will not be replaced. It's, I mean, just to the point of like, there's some actually mastery in some of the strategy because that actually... Mm -hmm sounds like a set of union workers, you know, being like, we're not going to be replaced by scabs or something like that. Right. So there's, there's, you see lots of ways they're grounding what they're doing. I mean, they're actually, we, we noticed the ways they're like studying social justice movements and like couching some of their stuff in that language. I think it's like fascinating. I don't know how much of that is like actually deeply felt or is actually just yeah. 
strategy and for a veneer, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting and fascinating. Um, yeah, I definitely think the majority minority country as people call it, like is a, uh, you know, seem to have set off a touchstone. I think president Obama's election seemed to set people off. And I think all of it, you know, I at least believe like worsened or easier to organize people around in that you had a lot of people that really since the seventies have been in some level of economic decline, especially with kind of deindustrialization and a lot of, you know, jobs and factories and, you know, kind of local economies, especially in some parts of the country being hollowed out. Like it's just, you know, I can imagine how easy it is for the right to animate and, and tap into that both sense of, you know, economic downward mobility, you know, then you have the deaths of despair, you know, with the kind of people, white people in midlife having rising mortality rates, um, plus the changing demographics of the country, like pretty easy fodder for an agitator to stir right. folks up, to be honest. So, but I think, I think, I think what you're saying is right. And people are like feeling it. I think, but I also would say like, I think we always do ourselves a disservice if we like bunch it. It's like when we talk about the 75 million people that voted for Trump, like that is not one thing, right? And I'm not saying, saying you guys are saying that, but I think it's like, it's much more complicated. And how do we understand kind of what slice, where people are at, like how far gone are folks um, and, uh, and who might we be able to move? Because as we experience through this deep canvas stuff, um, there's just a lot of potential, but I think that's the dynamic we're in. And then I think um, that we're, where we can get out and be in conversation with people and really help people like see, I mean, that is easier fodder, but there are, there are villains and there are people that are really responsible for the the fact that those union jobs aren't there anymore. They happen to not be the people that you think, um, but also show the power of building together across, across race and across geography, across gender, and like start to demonstrate some of those models. I don't know. I I would recommend to to your listenership, Heather McGee's new book, uh, the sum of us, um, and Heather McGee uh, used to run a think and do tank called Demo. She's a constant contributor on MSNBC, but she basically is, it's a, it's a, a New York Times bestseller making the case that addressing racism is not only going to be beneficial to people of color, but will be beneficial to low-income and working-class white folks. Um, and she makes that argument beautifully as a speaker in this book, um, I think is going to be a, a game changer for folks. Would you repeat the name of that book again, please? Yeah, The Some of Us. Um, and it's Heather McGee, um, and just so happy it made it onto the New York Times uh, bestseller list. So, and a key ally for us in, in a lot of this work. Okay. I want to I want to continue on with uh, to see each other in the podcast that you've launched. Episode three uh, takes you back to rural Iowa, where you uh, bring the listener to the front lines of an intergenerational, intersectional fl- uh, fight for the right to clean water, which we take for granted, unfortunately, and a return to a stewardship of the earth, while local farmers push against corporate greed and environmental contamination. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so the group in Iowa is a group called Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, which I've been working with for a long time. And they they have members in every county in the state, which is not an easy thing for a group to pull off and do some of the best kind of rural organizing and family farm organizing that I've ever seen, but also organize, you know, in, in the bigger cities in the state, like certainly Des Moines. And Iowa has been hard hit. Iowa, North Carolina, two of the most hard hit states by factory farms um, and and especially factory hog farms. There is way more hog manure by pound than there is people and and in in Iowa and and about 10 times as many hogs. That 782 of the waterways in the state are polluted because of runoff 
uh, from the Ooh. home. When one of these factory farms moves into your town, you literally, you could live a couple miles away and it is no longer at certain times a day, like, okay to be outside. Like, it's just like very uncomfortable to be outside because of the stench. I've been out, you know, in these different parts of Iowa many times and seen that. So folks that are like, um, live in Des Moines, uh, you know, a kind of multiracial group in Des Moines, folks in rural communities that tend to skew whiter, um, some that are, you know, 75 and some that are 18 or 19 have come together in the fight for clean water. Des Mo the city of Des Moines has the largest nitrate removal system in the entire world because it has to remove the nitrates from the hog manure that comes into the waterways. Um, and so they've bridged this beautiful multiracial, multi-generational coalition um, and they are in the fight. It, I mean, it is a pitched battle. They are in such a fight with corporate agriculture that corporate agriculture has created an organization just destroy to destroy Iowa CCI. That is how like live this fight is. Um, and uh, and then along the way, people start to make kind of meaning around different conversations. A really neat process with his folks in Iowa to help people think about immigration. And so now you have all these family farmers that a lot of us would stereotype if you looked at them as Trump voters, just because they're older, whiter and wearing their Western shirt and whatever that. And they are like avid fighters on uh, defunding police, on uh, on abolish, you know, on dealing with ICE and all of that stuff. And uh, just kind of, kind of amazing and a sign of what can happen. And, but it, it all started with the fight around clean water. Uh, I want to, if I can, um, in the interest of time, I want to, really hit on episode five. Mm. Uh, in North Carolina, we just talked mm. about North Carolina, we see friendships, friendships being forged in the face of centuries of racism, anti-racist organizing happening at the corner of Plantation and Corporation Avenues, and meet a, an historical political candidate, a black woman quite literally from the wrong side of the tracks, campaigning to co-govern co with her community. Now, before you answer, Liz has done an extensive research on plantations, mm. Jim Crow memorabilia. She has talked to, mm. to people whose ancestors were enslaved. Um, and we've had a sort of riveting conversation on, on the atrocities that have gone on in South Carolina back in slave time that in the interest of time, once we start down that path, we will be on this <laughs> for the rest of the hour. But your episode five, to me, seems like a galvanizing, powerful moment. Can you, can you reflect on that? Yeah. Um, so Down Home North Carolina, the organization featured in this episode, was founded kind of in the aftermath of Trump being elected. Um, some white nationalists and, and neo-Confederate groups um, in Alamance County, which is a you know, kind of former textile mill stronghold in the Piedmont, um, decided to create this organization called Down Home North Carolina with the focus of building a kind of multiracial coalition that could be a an alternative and a counterforce to, to visible rise in white nationalist, you know, mobilizations and a lot of live fights around Confederate monuments. But I mean, when I went down there uh, last, like you just go by the county courthouse on Friday night and the Klan would be like on, and well, not a big group, but they'd be there on the, just like, you just can depend on it. And uh, so, you know, and so we helped launch Down Home North Carolina as an alternative there and figuring out, and I would say is one of the best models and most hopeful models I've seen in the whole country of bringing low-income white, black, and Latino folks together in one coalition. Um, and um, and then in the process, people start to really kind of, they're just amazing. And then we start organizing in Appalachia. And so we have folks in Appalachia, North Carolina, and in Alamance County coming together, poor white and black folks who have lived in the same area, but not gone deep together. Um, and forming amazing friendships and bonds. And also I'd say having, you know, hard conversations around like, uh, 
um, just the, the lack of progress and why we haven't met each other the, there together. And then Dreama Caldwell is, is featured in this candidate who um, formerly incarcerated, uh, you, know, you know, as she says, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, um, it is a, has been a candidate. She did not end up winning. Um, I think a lot of people there feel like the Democratic Party didn't get behind her and a number of black women in the area and trying to raise a stink about that, but is still you know, I mean, a lot of times you, you run and you lose, but you become even more of a leader in the community. She is a key leader in the community and a key leader in down home North Carolina. Um, and I think, you know, I think the best best from her is, is yet to be said. But I would say, you know, definitely an organization that, you know, if you all Google them, you will find all kinds of stuff. I mean, their, their mantra is there. We get there first or the white nationalists do. That is their thing. Like we're going to, you know, we're, we're in a race and we'll come knock on your door and talk to you first. Um, and this is down home Carolina. Down home, North Carolina. Yeah. North Carolina. Wow. I'm making my notes here. Um, yeah. I am too. <laughs> really helpful. And, and George, uh, as we have about all oh, about ten minutes left, I I did not want to to leave this conversation on your podcast, which is aptly titled "To See Each Other." Uh, episode six mm. is in Southern Indiana. Yeah. Uh, your home, your, oh. your home state. Yeah. And we and 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 the sad part is I, I'm when from the descriptor I'm thinking of one of our counties that has really battled the addiction issue, Scott County. Yeah. And and there are other counties that have really waged a, have really yeah. waged a war on this. But in Southern Indiana, we meet a doctor, a mother, and a recovering addict doing their best to mobilize their community, eradicate their shame, and speak and work with compassion to help their neighbors. I bet mean, that was one of the most moving. Yeah episodes were about ready to start balling just thinking about it because it's so so resonant yeah like um the organization we feature is called hoosier action um and hoosier action was also founded one of these organizations that was founded in the aftermath of trump being elected um super also very hopeful and organizing in uh you know different parts of the state including uh, martinsville and down in new albany franklin other parts of the state um and I went to a meeting in Martinsville of about 250 folks. Um, and it was from people from across the state. It wasn't a Martinsville meeting, but I think, you know, I think we all know the historical significance. I think they picked Martinsville for, you know, the exact reason that you'd guess. And uh, one person after another just got up and told some story of like, it just shouldn't be this hard. It's just, right. and so it was somebody that was, you know, either, you know, their kids were in you know, prison for opioid use. Um, Maybe, you know, some, there were, there's been a lot, there's a lot of cancer in Martinsville and Franklin. And so there were some kids that had like tumors on their head, you know, little kids because of there's in Martinsville, there's a whole issue that is related to, to toxics in the dry cleaning industry. And then in Franklin water, there was a, a, a big toxic spill up there. Um, there were women who, I guess there's a law in Indiana that is really bad in terms of people getting any kind of breaks and time off as they're further along in their pregnancy. So you're just gonna lose your job. And so people getting up and they'd lost their kids. And so I just think kind of, I feel like we need as, as people that wanna seek justice, we gotta reach into the cracks and find the people that are being missed by our movements and our organizations. And I think Hoosier Action is definitely reaching into the cracks in Scott County and places like that. Um, and also creating a thing which we talk about in that episode, like, I don't like, Hoosiers, we aren't taught to talk about our shame. We don't even, you know, we're not taught to like be vulnerable. Like, I mean, most Americans aren't, right? But it's not a big part of a, it's not a big part of our culture. And like, I think in many ways, the most radical thing that Hoosier Action is doing is creating a space for people to actually learn to be vulnerable and say, this hurts, you know? And, uh, and, and I certainly as a, 
white guy growing up in Southern Indiana, like that was like, I was taught the opposite, like, you know, so and I'm sure, I'm sure that crosses race. And so, so really I would highly recommend checking them out. Um, and then the episode for, for Hoosiers, people recognize lots and listen to me wax philosophical about all, all things Indiana that I do love. So. Yeah. Well, as we, um, and I'm going to defer it to Liz after this, but you know, as we're now in this sort of uh, new normal of coronavirus, that vaccines are being distributed. One of the big issues that will, and it is being talked about is equitable vaccinations. And not only with um, races, but income, low income, you know, those who yeah. can afford to jump ahead in line, whatever. And there, there's yeah. a stereotype even being associated with people who by virtue of their occupation or whatever are getting ahead in the vaccination line and others. But uh, this is, this is going to be real, especially okay. if the goal is to vaccinate a hundred million people um, within what a hundred days or something. So what's your thought on that? How will rural America, how will the impoverished uh, fare and all this? Yeah. I feel like it'll probably be all over the place in terms of like local leadership. I say that in that, um, here in Chicago, um, where I'm at right now, is we, uh, um, you know, just implemented something where we're actually prioritizing six zip, zip codes that, you know, have been underrepresented in the vaccine so far. And just kind of like, we're going to focus on that group for a while. So I think it really looking at racial disparities in terms of a vaccine distribution. And so I think like in a place like this, it might, get, you know, get addressed. And then I think, you know, in other places where you don't have that kind of leadership, it won't. And, uh, and I feel like, especially in this moment of so much cultural awakening uh, around race and disparities, it needs to result in a policy awakening. Um, I would say that otherwise, like, you know, it only means so much. And and um, and then I think also, I think at the same time, we also probably need to do a better job of looking at like, how do you look at race and class or race, class and gender even? Because um, I think right now in a number of things, we're not looking at like just, you know, low income white people might not be in the thing if we don't have a plan for that and just stir things up. But I think the racial disparities is the, that's the longstanding piece. Um, and we can't let that continue. You know, George, uh, African-Americans in this country have been hollering and screaming about the racial disparities for 400 years. <laughs> and so uh, we're slow, aren't we? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and then now, since we have the phones and social media, now people can see right. what we've been talking about right. that we can show you. And then we say, oh, this is awful. What was hopeful to me, and I don't know how you feel about it, is during the marches, especially after George Floyd, is seeing all the white youth. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah. Well, a few things on this. Like, gosh, yeah, I feel like you're right. If we didn't have the phones... I mean, it's sad, but I think that was, it is really was, it's been a breakthrough. Like, I think that's well said. And then um, I think the kind of awakening this round with white folks, I mean, one of the things I meant to find interesting, and this doesn't get to the young people, but it's like white people who I think think of themselves as not racist, right? And feel like, okay, I'm not part of the problem. Yeah. I think had an awakening this last summer of like, wait, but I actually haven't really lifted a finger. Like I haven't really done anything to stop racism, to address it. I've tried to not be racist, but I haven't like tried to be anti-racist. And I think that, and I just, I know a bunch of people, not even through my organizing life, but others who are like that washed over them. And they're like, okay, what, what am I going to do differently? How am I going to show up differently? Where am I going to put my money where my mouth is? Now the question for me is how long that sticks. Is that six months or two years? Or is that like a new lifestyle? 
Um, and yeah, the young folks are just, you know, they're always ahead, you know, like yeah. they're always where the solutions are. And um, the last thing I'd say, and I'd like even say this to listeners, like I've always been moved by this moment in, in Malcolm X's biography where he says, you know, well-meaning white people should go to the front lines of where racism is. And that is in the white community and like do the work. And, uh, and I think a lot of people don't know that that's the work, but that is the work. And that is the work that, you know, white folks are well-equipped to do. I mean, you know, like, and, and so I, and that's what we're trying to say, like, don't, don't be embarrassed about doing that work. Be proud of it. Somebody need, we need you to do that. And I think we're trying to try to make it something more people want to do and, and, and own. I have one story to tell you, George. I have a, a, a group of fantastic men, older, that uh, videograph for me because I do make documentaries and things. And so uh, one of them got the DNA. Now he's one of these white people that have gone out to do the work. He wants to tell the stories of African-American experience. Mm -hmm. And so he did got the DNA test. He's 14% African-American. Huh. And he goes, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and <laughs> I said, well, you know, at one time we had a one drop rule. Uh, you got 14 of those drops. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That so if, as more and more people do that, then they're going to realize, no, uh, no. hey, I'm not pure. There is oh, no yeah. pure white race because uh, and I and I tell the older white men, I said, well, you know, your great grandfather, he was my great grandfather, too. <laughs> right. That's right. Oh, my. I know we had a wrap in a second, but I just like you made me think of Isabel Wilkerson's book Cast um, that came out. It was such a good book. I think like I would I just think it's so good because just because like, a whole section on purity, I think like, yeah, really powerful book. And like I would next time I like to do I'd like to do this again, but I'd like to interview you all. I feel like I you got way more to teach me than I have to share. So uh, someday I'd love maybe when I come down to Bloomington, we make that happen. Well, the key is, like you said, George, talking to people. Yeah. And I talk to people, I go, I knock on doors and sometimes I say, hey, you can't go up to that house. Well, how am I going to know things? You just talk to people. And if they really don't want to be bothered with you, you, you'll know and you back off and go somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have one final um, question that I want you to give uh, some reflection on. And, but Heather McGee's book again was entitled, what was that title? The Some of Us. Um, some some of, of Us. Okay. Okay, my, my final question really as of this recording date, uh, President Joseph Biden was successful in launching his first big initiative. He, his moniker was Go Big, and 1.9 trillion is big. Yeah. Uh, but in, in the final analysis, we all know that it's a big start, That's not true. the end. Um, your, your thoughts on just his thinking, is he in step? Uh, will he be pressed to do more, or is he on the right path? What are your thoughts as we close this out? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a hard person to please on this front because I think we need so much. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we need to, all of our systems need a major transformation, you know, so I think like um, we will see if he is up to that challenge. But I will say two things like one, I think we are seeing the power of organizing and movements to set the context that governing happens in. Right. This is a different Joe Biden than we would have had. I mean, I think, you know, a good person and definitely somebody that, you know, just kind of naturally has a big heart, but the things that he is leading on, um, the, the representation in his cabinet, um, the new, I mean, it seems like a just really sharper commitment to racial justice. Like I, I credit the context 
the organizers, the movements for changing the contents, the governing happens. And, and I mean, this is an ambitious, serious package, sure. right? And just the potential to affect children and childhood poverty, it's big. And I think next, we've got to go big on infrastructure. We've got to go big on putting people back to work. We got to go big on like kind of clean energy meets jobs. Um, and I think, and hopefully a lot of this stuff is structural. So it's like long lasting uh, shifts in how kind of power operates and how money operates. So I think that'll be the the big test. And it's up, up to all of us to put wind at the back of his sails by demanding it and pushing it, not just hoping it happens. But we, we, we gave this a good grade. We gave this, you know, for all the little things we wish were in it, we give this a good grade. Well, on that note, we want to thank George Gale for joining us this evening. George is Director of People's Action and People's Action Institute. He covered a variety of issues related to how the Democratic Party can best message and compel rural communities to consider their point of view honestly and earnestly. And to learn more about this organization, visit peoplesaction.org. Again, peoplesaction.org. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address again is bringiton at wfhb.org. Also, if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item or any of our guests that you've heard tonight, contact us at Bring It On at wfhb.org. Our show's executor is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is William Hosea. Our consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Kate Young. Our program engineer is Chantal La Fontant. Our original theme member uh, music was created by Jamel Ephraim with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.